Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Triple R. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of I'm Stoner Gogo. You are listening to 3 Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in for an hour of science. This is our last show before the Radiothon, so we thought we'd make it a pretty big one for you. And we have some amazing guests. We also have some amazing uh, co-hosts in the studio with me. Good morning, Chris KP. Good morning. How are you? Good, sir. I'm good. <laughs> Jeez, you, you, always, you don't look enthusiastic. <laughs> <laughs> but you are. I'm enthusiastic on the inside. Yeah, that's what counts. Uh, Dr. Susie, good morning. Good morning, good morning. Good to have you and your amazing accent back in the studio. Yeah, the best, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> subtitles, subtitles, subtitles. No, no, it's on all, radio? It's yeah, on radio. I want to see that happening. <laughs> it's all, well, these days you never know. Oh, uh, yeah, well, things are happening with apps and stuff and yeah, it's all going on. Folks, uh, a little bit later in the show, we're going to have Tanya Hill on, who runs the planetarium at ScienceWorks, and also we have a couple of researchers from University of Melbourne who are rewriting the textbooks on the eye, and uh, this is going to be a wild ride, so, you know, Anyway, strap yourself in for that one. But first up, we have Associate Professor Gemma Sharp, who's been on the show before, Head of Body Image and Eating Disorders Research in the Department of Neuroscience at Monash University. Welcome back, Gemma. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Well, Shane. On, let me turn on your Ooh. mic. There we go. Thank That's you. That's active <laughs> sabotage already, Dr. Shane. It's an absolute pleasure to be back on the show. It's great to have you on. Now, you were part of the radio therapy team for many years. I was, yes. Yeah, so I was Dr. G-Spot, but now I'm Associate Professor G-Spot. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> Do you get to choose? I've always wondered this about that show. Do you get to choose your own name? You Did absolute, you choose it? I, sadly, I did. Um, Interesting. I accidentally left it on for Zoom calls with, like, head of school, and I, uh, it was just yeah. appalling how I left it on. Oh, I think not it's, at all. I think it's, it's good. A, yeah, yeah, yeah that's great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we need to talk openly about this sort of stuff, and people need more knowledge of, of that part of the anatomy. They do. Yeah, love good a good stuff. elephant in the room too. <laughs> 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 I'm not sure where to go with that one. Uh, anyway, uh, you're doing some amazing work. There. It's been great to see how well you've been doing, Danny, because you oh. just in the last couple of years, I mean, you've moved around, you're doing new things. What, what's happening now? Oh, gosh, what isn't happening, Dr. Shane? Uh, so, yes, working on eating disorders and artificial intelligence. And I think everyone's probably been across chat GPT in the last couple of six months. And that's where my research is headed, more generative AI to help people with eating disorders disorders and body image concerns. So what does that mean? Because when I've asked a chat GPT, and I've got to say it took me six months just to get the order of those three letters right, <laughs> it's not overly helpful to me. I have used it for some things, and I think it can be really interesting, mm. but I'm not sure I would rely on it to, you know, give me feedback on my physical appearance. Mm. <laughs> how, do you, how do you play with that in that way? So I think ChatGPT is trained on open source AI, meaning yep. the whole of the internet. And mm. that's obviously... That's a problem. <laughs> you've got it. So there's a mm. lot of bias in that. So what we do in my group is we use that kind of technology but have smaller language models that are more domain-specific for body image and eating disorders. So it doesn't give any inappropriate responses like vote for Trump and things like that right. when I ask it questions. Yeah, like how am I, how am I looking in this outfit? Vote for Trump! Is that, is that <laughs> like, because there's some stuff there, right? I, I even, I mean, everyone's sort of done this. You know, you look yourself up. 
and you see what chat G- GPT says. What? And it didn't say much about me. I was very upset. I haven't done that. Do it. What? I'm going to do it. It's bruising. I'm totally going to do it. <laughs> You're going to do it right now. I'm tempted to actually. <laughs> and so, can you, so you can nail down part of the functionality. So that uh, is that through an app or through it's how do you do that? Through all of our previous work with chatbots that had constrained responses. So mm-hmm. that's what's called a rule-based chatbot. Yep. So uh, we trained it on all of the responses, and we have all of that data now to use that technology to make our own language model. So we don't have to rely on ChatGPT. Yep. Thankfully, um, we've got our own language model running, and that's where we're headed next with our research. Interesting. And how how big is the body image problem in Australia? Like, what what oh, are we geez. looking at? It's it's enormous. I mean, the the stats I've read are forty three percent of people are concerned about their body image. That's across all ages, genders, backgrounds, mm-hmm. yep. and certainly some groups are at greater risk, particularly adolescents who are forming that sense of self. So mm-hmm. we often target our tools towards young people. Right, and. When you say forty three percent, I mean, uh, you know, I've I've had some concerns. You know, I think many people have, but they haven't led to eating disorders or other serious health issues. So, mm-hmm. do we know what percentage of that group sort of we have to worry about? It, uh, I mean, I will say, Dr. Shane, that even um, those concerns, even if they don't lead to an eating disorder, they can still impact how we view ourselves overall, mm. our ability to engage with health professionals. For, exa- yep. for example, some people will avoid certain cancer screenings because of body image concerns. So any body image concern can lead to um, a lower quality of life, not yeah. just eating disorders. Yeah, interesting. I was just thinking about that now because you've called me out and I think I waited until I was like almost 50 before I saw a dermatologist i think that's bad yeah chat gpt agrees that, yeah that's yeah. bad, yeah. <laughs> that's bad. <laughs> like, and I, oh geez I, I might need a moment i might have to take a, a, a music break so i can sort of sort myself out yeah. chris kp is going to say something no, mean no, to just, me no no oh, not at all no I, I commend you on your vulnerability um i just um i'm interested in in where this will be like what will be the interface mm. and is it will it be overtly um, and explicitly bot-based. Well, people know that they're getting bot advice. Um, absolutely, yes. I don't believe in ever hiding that from people because of safety reasons. Like People need to know that we're not going to be able to connect them with a helpline service immediately, that it is a bot, and we have a lot of safety features built into all of our tools for that very reason. Yeah, that's good to hear. Yeah. Now, Gemma, of course, the reason we, we uh, got you on today was to talk about your big upcoming lecture because you have been invited. I'm, well, you, you tell us. You tell us. <laughs> I'm so excited. excited. Yeah. Thank you so much for the intro there, Dr. To Shane, there's been like a 16 week countdown for this event. <laughs> You're and not giving birth. Oh, it, it feels like <laughs> a calendar. Where you like, rip like off an the el- sheet elephant, elephant <laughs> baby. Um, so it's on the 7th of September yep. from 5:30 p.m. at the Alfred Hub. But there's also uh, you can also join via Zoom. So it's a hybrid event. So wherever you are in the world, you can join. Um, but if you do come to the Alfred, like any good eating disorder event, we'll have the best snacks in the world <laughs> from 5:30. Yeah, so it's worth coming. By best, do you mean like healthy and good, or like like Chris KP's holding uh, up a Toblerone I which mean you bought the us? Most well-rounded, delicious snacks all time um, with calorie information. Or? Not at all, not at all. We're just there to enjoy ourselves. Um, yep. So from five thirty to six is the refreshments, then six till seven is the lecture, and I will be talking all about the chatbot work or conversational AI work we've done since twenty eighteen, then through to as we're talking now the um, the I suppose um, initiatives we can take using generative AI Mm -hmm. and making um, 
I suppose, hopefully not the job of a psychologist obsolete, but certainly being able to support psychologists better in delivering their sessions and also being able to give people treatment exactly when they need it rather than waiting. Do people need to book in? They do, yes, because it's very exclusive. No, it it, it really isn't, (laughs) folks. Um, So please feel free to look look me up, Gemma Sharp at Monash. Just Google me. It's on my staff page. But if you're on Twitter, uh, at Gemma Sharp 11, you'll find it. And hopefully the Einstein Agogo crew will also be tweeting about it. Fantastic. Well, I hope you get a big crowd there. 7th uh, of September, be there and be square. There's nothing else on. (laughs) I've checked. There's nothing on. Really? Um, no, I'm not sure. But there's, you know, let's just assume there's nothing else on. And people should be. You know, every everyone's coming. The who's who of Melbourne. There's nothing better on. I think that's the yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. No, this would be great. And we know you're a good presenter, so I think it'd be a you. good. Uh, I mean, yes. Despite night. how you've seen me present today, I will do a good job on the seven. <laughs> you always do a good job, Jim. We love having you on the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming in. Uh, good luck with it. I've got a talk coming up at the same venue, so I'll be I'll be looking. You're there on the eighth, s- aren't you? Am I? I think so. Is it the careers day? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it'll be totally trashed because of you know, my event getting rowdy. <laughs> Who was the speaker before me? And this like place is destroyed. Food, food everywhere. <laughs> I mean, you I were talking that. about the snacks, right? Exactly. I love that. I'm going to just see there be spilt Coke spilt on the on the podium. I'll and just the, yeah. I'll the just keyboard be, to be sticky. I'll just be lying there on the ground, going, "Thank God it's over." Sugar <laughs> coma. <laughs> oh wow, that's fantastic stuff. Um, good luck, Gemma. Thank you so much, everyone. Uh, I really appreciate it. I'm sure it would be fun. So we will put that out on our Twitter feed, folks. But uh, look her up. Associate Professor Gemma Sharp from Monash University. And it's the 7th of September uh, that you're looking for. Not the 8th. Don't turn up on the 8th. No, you will not no, be welcome. Not- <laughs> there will be no snacks. No snacks. Exactly. They'll all be eaten. <laughs> all be gone. Uh, you're listening to Einstein the Go-Go, folks. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll be speaking with Dr. Tanya Hill from the Melbourne Planetarium. Triple R. Now, welcome back, folks. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with us now is our second guest for today, Dr. Tanya Hill, who is the Museum's Victoria Research Institute Curator of Astronomy. Welcome back, Tanya. It's been many years. It has. It's lovely to be back in the Triple R studios. I know. It's great to see you. Uh, we were just, but we were commenting outside that we, we have. We started working in our two respective areas last century. I know. Where has the time gone? <laughs> we haven't aged a day, though. No, we not at not all. We have not aged a day. Not one bit. Yeah, we're doing, we're doing good. Now, um, so tell me about the planetarium, because it's been probably five years or so since I've been there, and it was pretty spectacular back then. Is there new equipment? Is it um, what, What's happening down there at ScienceWorks? Yeah, there would have been, actually. Hmm. So just before COVID, we got an upgrade oh, with right. brand new projectors, uh, so high resolution when you're out in space, you get that really – this is something that uh, planetarium people really get uh, over the top about. We want black because right. we want you to – we don't want just a grey yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of the stars amongst the grey. We want you to feel like you are out in the, under the most pristine skies where it's deep and dark and black and the stars pop. Yep. But then, of course, we don't want to just see what – things look like from here on earth we want to take you out and be amongst it so you can we can any data set 
that astronomers have created, we can put now into the planetarium system, fly you through all the stars of the galaxy, and then fly you out of our galaxy through all the other galaxies that are out there. It's pretty mind-blowing. That's that's wild stuff. And has there been an upgrade on seating? Uh, not yet, though they are getting reupholstered next oh, nice. year. So we're yeah. excited because Chris KP's been there, and after you know, I got overexcited. You do really need to, you really need yeah. a change. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, how has the James Webb Telescope influenced the planetarium shows over the last year? Oh, hasn't it been amazing? Yeah. And I think also even just when I'm speaking to people who may not necessarily have had that astronomy interest before mm. and there they are following the Instagram account and yep. the, you know yep. telling me look at this latest image and I'm also amazed because I was a little bit worried I must admit when it was because Hubble Space Telescope has done such incredible things but yeah. it shows us what our eyes would see it yep. works in the optical yep. whereas taking it to the infrared I was a little bit worried and I've realized now that's also my bias because I did infrared astronomy <laughs> 20 or something years ago and it was really hard yeah, yeah, and the yeah. images were really kind of pixelated yeah. and so to now see oh, what JWST mm. can do and yeah. the imagery that's coming out and how it's captivating all our imaginations yeah it's just brilliant I I don't I'm not a big documentary watcher i'd rather go and read this or the source material and stuff myself but um there is a documentary about the james webb if people haven't seen it on netflix which is actually really great like i I watched it and i thought it was really good it was a really good indication of just how bloody hard this was Mm -hmm. to put this particular beast up and why there were so many delays and cost overruns and so forth because it's it's you know size of a tennis court and Mm -hmm. and it's in a really you know impossible to get to place you know was it four times the distance to the moon away from us 1.5 1.5 million kilometres. Yeah. Yeah, Easy. nothing. Uh, yeah, so it's a long way away. We can't go and fix it or repair it. It had to be one-shot deal, you know, mm-hmm. not like Hubble where, you know, every five minutes it seems like we're up, upgrading the firmware. Um, yeah. you know, we, which it was designed to be like yeah, that, exactly. which was, yeah, was yeah, great because yeah. when, when Hubble originally went up, it actually collected data with a tape recorder. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you yeah. know, that's why it's that's lasted wild. so long. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good old days. Yeah, and it's still going strong. I mean, Hubble's still going strong, but you know, it, without the capacity to now repair it in orbit with the space shuttle program no longer there, you know, its lifetime is limited. But yeah. but James Webb is bringing back extraordinary, extraordinary information. And so when you when you're putting together a new show, I mean, where do you start? Like, what's the like? We're going to do a new show for the planetarium next year. Uh, where do you start? Yeah, it, it's it's fun, isn't it? So one of the things we're doing because we've got this new equipment is we're actually leaning more towards. Uh, highlighting what the system can do and getting our presenters to run the shows. So a lot of our shows in the past have been we've we've made movies. Whereas now what I'm currently working on is working with our presenters so that it'll be a 30-minute tour through the solar system. And we want to roll out a few of these. And so the first one, our theme is on water. And so where can you hunt for water in the solar system? But talking about JW. Everywhere, right? It it is everywhere, (laughs) which is the surprising thing. Start in Selvis, though, Moon of Saturn. Like, you've got to start there. Well, we're actually going to start Mercury. Really? Well, because I think that... Yeah, wild. Is that what what makes us realise that if you can find water in Mercury, it's probably in lots of places. But good old JWST. So we've created this great animation to show of – because we always thought that water on Earth came from comets. Mm. And so we've got this great animation that you'll see the comet flying overhead and and crashing into an early Earth, and it's really fantastic. And then just this week – 
JWST, <laughs> goes and uh, shows it's just taken an image of uh, a protoplanetary disk yep. around a distant star where there's an exoplanet forming and it's quite close to the sun, to, to its star, just yep. as close as the Earth is, and it's found water. Because we always thought that when the Earth was forming so close to the sun, it was too hot yeah. for water to water be there. Came later. So Comments. therefore, the water had yeah. to come from yeah. the outer where it was cold. Well, it turns so out much. that may not be the case. Mm. So you know, that's the fun thing about science, though, isn't it? So we can you go into that more. particular planetarium show and just edit that bit out? Well, this, is, <laughs> <laughs> this is the great thing because it will be presenter-led. Every time something yeah. new comes along, mm. we can update it as yeah. we as I, we go through. I, I suppose I, you know, I remember going, uh, and you know, you were there on one of the last nights. I, I went there. It's when we were doing the telescopes in schools program, yes. and we were showing the photos. And you know, you introed everything. Which was great, but then it was just here's the here's the movie, and I think having that interaction, uh, presumably people can ask the presenter questions and so forth as well. So that makes it very different two way communication. Exactly, and I do think that that's kind of where we're leaning to society. Mm. I think is a bit now we we want that interaction and that more connection that we can bring, and so I'm, we're really excited about doing that in yeah. the planetarium. Now there's some shows coming up. Now originally we were uh, we asked you to come on to promote a show that's on tonight for National Science Week on black holes, but <clears throat> sorry folks, sold out. Yes, so, it did really well. Yeah. But we do have some more National yes. Science Week what events. What else has happened? So next Saturday, the 20th of August, and this is a fantastic – it's an art-science collaboration. Uh, we've got Jenna Robertson from – she's a Brisbane artist, mm-hmm. and she's performed this at the Brisbane Planetarium, but it's the first time it's coming here to Melbourne. And I've heard it's, it's – the reviews are amazing. It's a very emotional, personal journey. She actually takes on the persona of the universe and weaves together music and astronomy wow. and philosophy and, yeah, will take you to places that you, mm. you don't necessarily expect. Yeah, that sounds wild. In how much is Indigenous astronomy included in the shows these days? I think it was just starting the last time I was there. There was, there was some material in there, but not a huge amount. So how, how featured is that now? Yeah, so we do – so with all our planetarium sessions, we do a feature of what's in the sky tonight yep. because we, we want to arm people that if you've come to the planetarium, mm. over the next few nights, these are the things you want to be looking out for. And so included in all of those, we include the stories of the Borong right. people because we have amazing records – of um, there was a lovely Barong family. We we don't unfortunately know who they were, but they shared their stories with uh, William Stanbridge, who gave mm. an address to the Royal Society of Victoria, and we've got the notes from that address and the the depth of the information mm. and how much uh, all the different stories and, and star names that uh, that they were aware of were able to share in yep. the planetarium. Oh, that's great. I think it's um you know it's one of those things where you know we we, we talk a lot about what what's happened in Australia but the one thing we don't talk a lot about is the the loss of sky Mm. and for for everyone you know like you you go outside and you can't see squat I mean if you're lucky it's a night and you can see the moon but you don't see anything in the city anymore and I think you know even growing up in Melbourne it was different you Mm -hmm. know like I was just 
15 k's from the CBD where I, I grew up in Yarraville. But the sky was completely different. And now there's nothing. No, there's it's nothing. really hard. Even just, yeah. you know, finding the Southern Cross some nights yeah. can be, yeah, if there's something, big sporting activity or something going on and lights everywhere, it can yeah. be can be really hard. Uh, one place recently I went to, we had visitors down. So we went to see the penguins at Phillip yep. Island. Yep. I was amazed mm. at how they've really there. worked hard. I've heard because they were worried about the lights actually affecting yeah. the penguins. But, of course, what that's also given us yeah. the sky. So you're down nice. there and you're around all these people and you've got enough light and yet you can still see the Milky Way, the Magellanic Clouds. Um, my son and I were spending as much time looking up <laughs> as we were with the <laughs> yeah. penguins. Yeah. Now, you, you did your PhD up at, uh, at Parks? Uh, so uh, my, my PhD was at the University of Sydney, right. but I did use the Parkes Telescope yep. to find black holes. Black holes. How many? How many black holes do you have your name on, Tanya? So five of them. Five. Five. Yeah. Jeez. I mean, there's a few out there, but that's a good number. Yeah, it was pretty good. Yeah, yeah, we had a day of observing. We used. I was at the Parkes Radio Telescope, and my colleague was at the Tin Bimbilla mm-hmm. Telescope in Canberra. Um, that, that's the NASA tracking station. Yep. And uh, and so. Because we were we linked those two telescopes, and that meant it was like we had a radio dish three hundred mm. kilometres across. Right. And if we detected anything in our galaxies, then it had to be coming from a very very small region. And the only way to explain it would be the power of a supermassive black hole, all the material follow, funneling in, getting incredibly bright. Yeah. And uh, and yeah, so we observed about twenty galaxies and discovered supermassive black holes in five of them. It was That's quite wild. Fun. Mm, and, so and, cool. I mean, that was, that was good old days when, you know, like stone knives and bear skins, right? It was tough <laughs> to find these things. Now they seem to be, they're everywhere. You know? well, <laughs> what's incredible, so uh, people may well have seen that in recent times we've actually taken a photograph. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, and, yeah. and that's a similar setup, although instead of just using two telescopes, they used like eight, eight, yeah. oh, it was eight <laughs> telescopes yeah. around the world. Yeah. And, you know, and they didn't get, they got more than just a little, yeah. I got a blip in my signal. <laughs> they could actually turn it into an image and the next thing they want to do if they can add more telescopes is actually see if they could get a movie so you oh, can wow. see oh, the material that would be great yeah that'd be cool can't wait for that that'd be cool i think uh it, it, it amazes me i was watching a episode of uh, a rerun of stargate um oh, one and it was you know it's, it's a bit old now but um but they had the old view of the black hole in there you know like in the film the black hole yes. with maximum snell and <laughs> and you know there's yeah. You know, Picture it, folks. It's just a swirling drain. <laughs> it's like your bathtub. Whereas now, you know, uh, thanks to the creative work in inter- the film Interstellar, Interstellar yeah. we now have that picture of what it should look like, and that was exactly what they saw with that telescope um, experiment, that which is wild, yeah. absolutely crazy. And what I love, so they trained, uh, or the computers gave, you know, got them to work on an algorithm. So they trained them on images of everything because they mm. didn't want it to be biased to think that it would look the way yeah. we thought and yet it came out the way we thought mm. and then if you've seen they then updated yep. and did a new image going okay well if we assume that it does look like what we think a black hole and so you can just see it even more refined yeah. Yeah. and better that's wild well folks uh, there's a whole of shows coming up at the, the planetarium the melbourne planetarium you can uh, find them I'm, I'm guessing on the museum victoria website all the information 
is there? Absolutely, yeah. Yep. Museums of Victoria or Science Works, go yep. to either of those websites. And, yeah, yeah, would love to see you next Saturday. Yeah, that'd be great. Our... And you'll know when you're there, folks, because Tanya's enthusiasm oozes out of the building slowly. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell. You can feel it. You get near Spotswood and you just feel Tanya's enthusiasm coming out of the planetarium. Oh, that's really lovely. Thank you, Shane. <laughs> well, uh, we'll get you back on in, uh, what, eight years? I think it's been, <laughs> it's been a while. Um, but thanks so much for coming in, Dr. Tanya Hill, and uh, good luck with those amazing new shows. Brilliant. Thanks. Folks, we're going to take a short break for some station announcements, and then we'll be back. Triple R. Now, welcome back, folks. You're listening to Einstein and Go-Go. In the studio with us now is Associate Professor Laura Downey, who is the Dame Kate Campbell Fellow and is Associate Professor in the Department of Optometry and Vision Sciences at University of Melbourne, and also Dr. Holly Chinnery, who is a Senior Lecturer also in the Department of Optometry and Vision Sciences at University of Melbourne. Welcome, both of you. Good morning. Thank good you. Good morning. Thank you for having us. It's good to have you. You're both back. You've been on the show many years ago. Um, which is good to have you both back. But you've been doing some wild stuff. So first of all, um, Laura, I want to ask you about the eye. So the front of our eye, I always thought it was just tears. But over the years, you've taught me (laughs) over many years that these tears and everything about the front of our eye is very sophisticated. There's a lot in it. So just talk us through what is happening at the front of the eye. Absolutely. Um, So the eye is obviously constantly exposed to the environment Mm. um, and so needs to be able to protect itself um, from pathogens and other environmental things um, that we're exposed to. And so the tear film... Uh, which is the kind of outer coat of the eye, um, is really important in doing that. So tears have about 2,000 components, so they're inherently really complex, and the tears constantly bathe the surface of the eye. So right underneath your tears is a structure known as the cornea, uh, which is about 500 microns, about half a millimetre thick, Mm. um, and it's a uniquely transparent tissue Uh, And it's actually that tissue and its immune cells uh, that we've been able to look at in a really exciting new way in Mm. humans uh, very recently. Now, now with the... Just to sort of pressure a bit there on the on the structure, like the tears, are they coming out of the cornea or is it a different part of the eye? Where do the tears come from that coat our eye? So tears are produced by various glands in the eye. So the major part of tears comes from what we call the lacrimal gland, mm. uh, which secretes like a watery component. Uh, but we also have lipid, so oily components to our tears, and what we call mucins, which actually come from some of the surface cells of the eye, and they impart the viscosity or the stretchiness. So you actually need all those components to work in concert to really have a healthy, well-functioning tear film. Um, Otherwise, uh, you're prone to conditions like dry eye disease. If if I go and buy a little vial of artificial tears... Are there, are there 2,000 components in that bottle or is that just salt water? So there are some components that mimic elements of the tears, yep. but they're certainly not as complex as our natural tears. Yeah. So they can boost the tear volume and can supplement certain parts, yep. um, but our physiological tears are remarkably yeah, complex in their um, composition. Interesting. Now, your work is around the immune system and how that part of the eye works. So, Holly, if I go and pick up a textbook, like if I'm going through medical school and I pick up a textbook, old style, what's it going to tell me about the eye in yes, terms so of the immune system? It will 
tell you that in the surface of the cornea that the major immune cell type is a cell called a dendritic cell. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, we've contributed to a lot of that literature over the years. So we, you know, we believed this as well. And most of that information really came from uh, research done in animals, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly mouse models of immunology in the eye. And we thought for a long time that the immune system in the mouse eye was really similar to the human eye. And in the last few years, we've actually kind of changed our mind, I guess, based on (laughs) this new exciting evidence. And now we understand that actually in the human cornea, in the surface of the cornea, in the layer called the epithelium, that actually there's uh, a population of immune cells called T-cells. Right. The T-cells, this is the stuff we get around our skin and so forth. This is the first line defense stuff. So why why did we not expect to find T-cells in the eye? Well, that's a good question. And as a question we've been asked quite a bit more recently. Hmm. And again, I think it's because we were using the mouse eye a lot and thinking that, well, in the mouse eye, we only see these dendritic cells. And so when we look at human eyes using a a microscope, we can see some cells that look a bit like dendritic cells and also some cells that look a little bit like dendritic cells, but without long processes. And we just thought maybe they were dendritic cells in a different state of activation. Right. Right. Interesting. So, Laura, you go searching for these T cells. I mean, what do they look like and how do you find them? And yeah. why didn't we find them before? Yeah, so um, the work we've done recently, which we're really excited about, um, is a collaborative piece of work. So led by Holly and also Professor Scott Muller from the Doherty mm-hmm. Institute um, and my team. And what we were able to do is develop a way to dynamically track immune cells in the cornea in living humans. Ah. And so this hadn't been done before. And so by doing this, we started to not only look at the shape of the cells, which is historically what had been done on static images, but also how they move and how they interact. And so when we started to look at the behaviour of the cells in humans, we started to see that their motility characteristics, the way they interacted with nerves and other cells, was actually very similar to phenotype T cells in the mouse. Mm. And so that led us to start thinking, well, actually, have the categorisation of these cells in the human cornea based on just shape and static images been incorrect And so that was really where our collaboration started. Uh, And then over time, we've pieced together different elements of evidence. So we were able to um, access human donor corneas and -hmm. actually look for certain cell markers and to show that there were T cells in the human cornea. And so over time, we've kind of accrued this inferential evidence that we can now apply to the clinical imaging that we do in vivo. Yeah, wild. That's kind of what I was going to ask about because what you're describing is a complete shift in the way the research is done, like physically, literally what happens in in a a research facility. Is anyone in this area working in, in, I guess, in eye immunology, is anyone still bothering with mice? Oh, (laughs) Yes. So we do do still need the mice, of course, because we can, you know, we can take the tissue at the end of an experiment and we can ask a lot more questions about the function and the phenotype of those cells. Whereas in the humans with this new technique that we've developed, it really is only useful, I guess, when the humans are living and healthy and it's it's a lot harder to get that tissue at the end and we certainly can't take biopsies of yeah. human corneas. So we do have Thank an you. important role <laughs> <laughs> for the preclinical research right. uh, and also we're able to... Um, 
test, uh, stimulate the eyes in mice a little bit with different um, reagents and chemicals to see how that will stimulate the immune cells. Yeah. So we can translate that information back to the human work. So, Laura, you know, I've been in the chair with you too many times uh, as my optometrist. <laughs> Lucky me, though. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's how we first met. Right? It is. I mean, that's how we ago, first met. I had a bit of an eye emergency, and Laura yep. helped me out and got me in to see, I think it was a Dr. Green or um, I think that was... An ophthalmologist. Yeah, ophthalmologist, because yep. yep. you looked at me and thought, I can't help this guy. <laughs> we need some specialty care. Get out of my <laughs> Get away from me. You got some, <laughs> some infection. Um, but in terms of that uh, imaging... What, what are we talking about in terms of equipment? Is this completely new or is this something you could do with the existing sort of equipment with a few adaptations? And what, will you be doing this to me the next time I see you? Yeah, so so the equipment is commercially available. Mm. So it's a corneal confocal microscope okay. and it's actually the way that we've been able to capture the images and then do post-processing that is unique. So because of that, it actually means a technique could be translated into clinics and research centres very rapidly rapidly mm-hmm. um, by applying our approach to existing kind of hardware or infrastructure. Mm. So that's one of the aspects that we're really excited about, um, that we think there's scope for this to be used um, in many different ways. So uh, we know the cornea is really um, highly innovated with sensory nerves. Yep. So this could hap- have, have, have application in neurology, in ophthalmology, um, even diabetes. Yeah, um, right. So trying to look at immune responses in people uh, because it's the only place you can directly see those yeah. cells yeah. in a living human. Yeah. So and and, and, th- and and the vasculature, mm-hmm. right? You can see you can see our arteries through the eye it's the only place you can do that right so that's the back of the eye yeah, the back of the yeah eye. But absolutely that too, like the eye's just wild the eyes are window to health <laughs> yeah. and yeah the, they often say the eyes are window to the brain uh we're kind of saying the cornea is a window to the immune system yeah. now and that's something that we hadn't really fully appreciated before D- does this change the sort of treatment protocols you'd give people for various um aspects of eye disease given that the you know in in the past you're working with one type of cell that you may want to enhance or help along and now you're working with something completely different yeah so what we think this might enable us to do is a bit of a a blood test for a patient but of their eye or of their cornea so by developing these um, methods where we can start to learn about the different subsets of immune cells living in a person's cornea, we think that might change the way we treat them for a particular eye disease because now we'll know actually they've got a lot of macrophages in this part of the cornea or they've got an excessive number of T cells and that might change which type of drug or treatment will be applied to try to solve that issue. Yeah, that's wild. Now, how do you go about the textbook corrections? Like, what happens there? Do we write a letter, do we? (laughs) I don't know. know. Presumably, like, everyone's going to learn this. Right? Yeah. This is wild. So, so we're, yeah, this has all only kind of become available in the last month or so. Uh, so we're really interested to see um, the response from within the field and mm. kind of speaking to people at conferences, I guess, over the next few months. Um, but change can sometimes take time. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, but we do expect that over time, kind of the, the thought philosophy around what the immune cells in the cornea are and how that relates to diagnosis and therapy is is likely to change based on this recent work. Yeah. Plate tectonics took about 50 years. I hope <laughs> you don't have to wait that long. <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> but it does take time because yeah. it's kind of shifting a dogma 
um, yeah. and kind of challenging what we've always assumed to be true based on the preclinical studies. Um, but it's just showing that in the humans it, it is a bit more complex um, than initially thought. Yeah. In terms of uh, advice for people at home in terms of eye care, you know, if you, if you, you just had three things you could tell people about, you know, taking care of your eyes, like what, what, what advice <laughs> would right, you right, go to? Four things. Four, fine. Okay, four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah well, like what, what are the best things to do? Like just for every, every person, just average people. Well, I think having your eyes tested yeah. is really important. So making sure you see your optometrist uh, and not ignoring any eye symptoms. So if you do have, you know, burning or gritty eyes or blurred vision um, many of these things can be well managed Um, Mm. so seeking out some eye care uh, is really important Um, obviously we're in a very technologically enriched environment uh, and so often as optometrists we receive questions about how to interact with computers Um, so in that respect you know there are some simple things people can do around ensuring good ergonomic setup and good lighting um, and so giving their eyes a rest as well so ensuring that how we interact with our devices is kind of factored into our our daily life I saw an article uh, published by the University of Melbourne just this last week about blue light. I thought we'd just touch on it before we let you go, because blue light has been like you know, uh, you know, evil. Yes. Um, is it still evil? Well, blue light does have important physiological roles. Okay. So it uh, has a role in maintaining our natural circadian rhythm. Um, but there has been this hypothesis or this suggestion that perhaps a blue light emitted from our electronic devices could be in some way detrimental to our eyes. Um, now, that uh, is not supported uh, by the body of evidence, uh, but nevertheless, uh, you may be aware of blue light filtering lenses, mm. um, and so those have been marketed in some cases to reduce eye strain. Uh, So we did a Cochrane systematic review recently and basically that synthesises different studies and tries to bring that research together to give an overall picture of the current landscape of evidence. And so based upon that and what we know today, um, the research tells us there's no advantage or unlikely to be any advantage with wearing a blue blocking lens to reduce eye strain. Uh, so that's had a bit of media Jeez, attention. And, um, but it's a really common question that people will ask because yeah. they're so well-known and um, kind yeah. of... And yeah. many, many places when you go and get glasses, they're like, do you want this, do you want this, do you want this, do you want this? And what was a $90 pair of glasses becomes 350 because you've where got all you these. Getting, where are you getting glasses for 90 bucks? Well, you know, there's sales, man. <laughs> wow. <That's laughs> I'm a, a cheapskate. <laughs> he has like, friends. I've always liked you. Did you know this too when, when, when Laura was talking about, you know, see your optometrist to get your eyes? So she was looking straight at me. Yeah. Like, you, I haven't seen you in years. Years. What is going on? No I, judgment. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I actually felt you looked a lot around the room. <laughs> oh, I haven't seen you before. <laughs> uh, look, it's something that's very important, but I think um, we, we fail sometimes to just take into account like the various parts of our body. And there's some things where we will immediately take action. You know, if we, you know, even I think people will often go and see a physio more readily than they'll they'll go and see an optometrist. And yet it is such a crucial part of our, our body that, you know, as, as you say, is so complicated. There's so many things that can go wrong and we need to be on top of that. So I'll, I'll make an appointment. Come, Good come work. See. Good well, job. You know, you know what? I get scared because you, you have those magic drops. Oh, yeah. yeah. And when I leave your office, every white car is evil. 
Yeah, dilation drops. The dilation drops. So the white cars glow like the sun. Yeah. And it's kind of trippy. Yeah. If you're not driving anywhere, I recommend oh, it. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> bizarre yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's not so. to drive after those drops. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, that's what you always told me. Um, Associate Professor Laura Downey and Dr. Holly Chinnery, thank you so much for coming thank in. You. I thank ab- you for having us. Look, I applaud you on this work. It is, you know, textbook changing stuff. Um, I hope uh, your respective organisations throw large amounts of money at you, <laughs> and you get many grants to support this work because nice. it's really uh, cool stuff. And I think it will affect many people around the world. So, thanks so much for chatting today. Thank you. Thank you. And great. Thank you, folks. We're going to take a short break for some station announcements, and we'll be back with some news to finish the show. Triple R. Yes, there's all of the universities that have open days today, I think. Uh, some last mm. week, some next week. Mm. I think it's Melbourne Uni and Victoria University today. I'm not sure if I'm missing this, but I'm probably missing some. But uh, it's all happening. Chris KP, there's some other stuff happening too. Oh, yes, there is. Uh, if you haven't already heard, uh, Triple R and the 86 Super Saturday uh, are taking over Northgate Theatre. Oh. Nice. Which, yes, very exciting. On the 28th of October, uh, so Triple R and 86 celebrate Melbourne as one of the world's greatest music cities. I think that's a reasonable assertion. It, it mm-hmm. is an excellent city for, uh, for music. Uh, this night will feature Briggs, Delivery, Kait, Nomi Rowe, Party Dozen, and 1300. Here's the deal, though. Tickets are free. Um, and Triple R lists are advised to get in as quick as they can, but this is not one of those call the station things. Oh, and it yeah. certainly isn't one of those rock up at the door and cross your fingers things. <laughs> um, you'll need to register by going to the 86.com, and that is spelt out. That's T H E A E I G H T Y S I X.com. So the, 80, uh, the 86.com uh, to register uh, for the 28th of October when 86 and Triple R take over Northcote. Theatre. I like it. Sounds Amazing. Good. Sounds good. Uh, Dr. Sushi, some news. Some news. I want to talk to you about superconductors. Ooh, they've been in the news oh, lately. I a know, lot. they yes, have. So yes. it was super exciting back in July when researchers from uh, Korea named Lee and Kim, which comes to important later, um, published a paper or a preprint, I have to say, about a new superconducting material that supposedly is a superconductor at room temperature. So Holy grail. Yeah, I yeah, know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. For people who don't know about superconductors, they are super cool because they have superconducting properties at super low temperatures, so mm. usually below minus 100 degrees Celsius. And they experience or they, they show really cool properties, mainly that they lose their resistivity. So, you know, they get super conductive, hence yeah. the name. Yeah. And they also have something really funky, which is, you know, good for science shows and stuff, which is they exp- <laughs> expel a magnetic field, which makes them kind of levitate over magnets. So if you go to open days, you know, at yep. universities and you go to the physics department, you usually see them on like a Mobius strip or something and, you know, they get all levitating. Anyway, so these guys in Korea, Lee and Kim, um, had a material called LK, like Lee and Kim, 99, um, made from, I think it's lead, copper, phosphorus and oxygen in some combination. And they claim that to be a superconductor that's superconductive at room temperature and more than well, atmospheric pressure. So, you know, where we live in. So you just walk down the street. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. With your up, to, up to yeah. 104.8 degrees and even in some cases up to 127, which is quite wow. hot. Yeah, boiling water stuff. I know. Huh. And that's really, okay. you know, that's revolutionary because that would be great to use for electrical equipment and things. But then... Yeah. 
science does what science does. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a lot of people were a bit skeptical about that and went into the lab to reproduce this. And this week, well, last week, there were a lot of news articles and publications coming out that it actually felt the reproducibility test. So researchers uh. tried to do that in the lab and they couldn't reproduce it. They can't find the levitation properties and they can't find the superconductivity. But scientists are a bit notorious for not just <laughs> stopping there. <laughs> they went further and investigated why this is the case. Yeah, because, yeah, you course. know, it would be so cool if that would be the case. And um, what they actually found is that when you produce this, the route that they published, so the chemical synthesis route, um, it has a byproduct called copper sulfide, CO2S. Um, and that has a phase transition temperature of 104 degrees Celsius. So if you heat that up, it does a phase transition in copper sulfide drops in resistivity so the resistance drops oh, and okay. what they found is that apparently their crystals that they made of the super supposedly superconductive material had up to 70% copper sulfide impurities that's I do air quotes it's a lot of impurity and that you know gave them this resistivity drop that supposedly made them a superconductor and so guys in Germany you know the Germans again bloody Germans <laughs> at the Max Planck Institute <laughs> went all out on this oh, wow. and made yeah. a single crystal of the support you know of the LK99 oh, right. material so yeah, the yeah. actual lead wow. copper phosphorus oxygen material super you know super single crystal super pure and found it's actually an insulator so oh, wow. <laughs> Oh, so it doesn't it's conduct super, at all. It doesn't it's conduct a at all. Sub so, like, conductor. they basically they basically needed the impurities, which is up to seventy percent, to make it conduct uh, to, to make you know drop the resistivity. And it's just so they made a really good insulator. I know, and it yes, goes even further. Yes. So they they go and say, you know, oh, why did they show these videos that it levitates? And then they found that it's actually not levitating in the videos. They just angled it, which is a ferromagnetic oh, thing. So it really? shows some kind of magnetic property from ferromagnetism, oh. but not real levitation. So it's all a hoax. And like science is like, this is science, my friend. So that's, yeah. that's really interesting because I was, I was assuming that they, you know, mistaken what they'd done. They thought they'd yeah. done something really yeah. good. They got yeah. excited, they published it, and then, you know, and the system kicked into gear. Mm. But not that they were actually actively faking it. That's, yeah, kind of, yeah. kind of. And it's so, and then comes, you know, Welcome to a new episode of Scandals in Science. <laughs> if you listen to my Occam's Razor podcast, you'll hear that again. Anyway, <laughs> shameless plot. Yeah. But uh, scandals in science. So, into digging deeper, you know, they published this on the University of Korea or Korea University, and they're actually a startup company. Oh, mm. oh, right. So, so uh, come and buy my superconductors. Exactly. Uh, minimum more than one thousand. Yeah. Uh, Get a shipping free blue light next filter. Year. And the problem is, you know, <laughs> just. Talk <laughs> talking about impurities, you know, if this is an impurity-based system, even if you could use this, because it's, you know, every synthesis, every batch is different, basically every material they sell will have a different transition temperature because you never know right. how much copper sulfide right. there really is in there and in how many domains and whatnot. So it's just, it's like in any way, not good. Feels like the days of cold fusion all over again, doesn't it? I know. Yeah, we never got there. Uh, yet. It's, yet. I have to say, though, it's, it's, it's great to see, you know, people... People throw a bit of mud every now and then against science. And mm. this is why I think the climate science is, is mm. you know, the robustness around that is exactly the same as yeah. the process that has shown this to be yeah. false. And that's why, you know, one of the reasons why those of us who are, you know, fully behind the idea that we are 
almost swore, damaging the climate, mm. <laughs> changing the climate, um, you know, do not have to go back and say, oh, no, hang on, I don't believe so those I, scientists. It's like this stuff gets worked out really yes. fast. I reckon, the the, I reckon the biggest gap, the, 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 the critical gap for people is recognising that this is not people who are just going, I don't believe you. They're going, no, 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 I'm testing it. Yeah. Yeah. There, isn't, there isn't evidence. Yeah. I don't have done. Not just I don't like yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And know? I think that the, the reason behind this was that they would have liked it. You know, oh, I mean, this oh, would have course. revolutionized oh God, our yes. electrical equipment yeah. if that would have been a material at room yeah. temperature. Yeah, yeah. So they were like, oh, my God, we have to produce this yeah. en masse. Yeah. And then they're like, we can't. <laughs> what is wrong? <laughs> mm. <laughs> Oh, well. I know. Uh, still in the realm of science fiction. Oh, well. but, uh, but great to see that falsification is working know, beautifully and science is doing what science does well, which I is know. correct itself exactly. you know, and evolve when something is amiss. Love it. And, uh, Solve correctly system. There we go. Chris KP, got a couple of minutes. Uh, oh, yes. Oh, look, I was very excited with our last two guests because they were talking about tears and my mm. story. Uh, I was inspired by tears today. So the thing about tears, apart from the 2,000 uh, ingredients in your tears, etc., the thing about it, of course, is we experience them usually, apart from just the doing good things for your eyes, is when we're in emotional states. If you get very oh. sad, you'll cry. Yep. Um, uh, if you're very excited, you might cry as well. Or um, happy. Or, or happy, yeah. Um, yeah. I cried when the helicopter took off on Mars. As you would. Just as a little you, bit. Exactly. As you should. And, it's, yeah. and there's a whole question about, well, why do you need tears to be happy or sad or whatever? Yeah. But that's a whole other story. But is, the thing is, it seems like it's one of those things that, it, that we have, but it's weirdly human, like so many things. Okay. Yep. Uh, so there's uh, a researcher um, who observed that uh, when, she, when her dog had puppies, she seemed to be quite teary. And thought, that's, that's weird. Why would that be? Well, there's no connection there. But then started poking into it a bit further and eventually set up a, uh, a, an experimental regime whereby what she was looking at was separating dogs from their owners for a period of time, like, for, you know, potentially a, a couple of hours, and then reintroducing them again. And basically what would happen at that point is but they were able to measure that the dog was producing more tears when reunited with its owner. Oh. I know, it's a, little, isn't it? it's a little bit lovely, yes. The thing that's interesting for me about this, of course, is that what does that mean? And it's very tempting, and I'm a massive dog person as well. Who isn't? Um, yeah. Um, it, it's very tempting to dangerously anthropomorphise this. And we yeah, go, oh, yeah, yeah, the dog's happy and the dog's yeah. excited. And, well, maybe, maybe not. But the point is it does show that the the uh, the response to a situation and the production of tears is not uniquely human. Yeah. Um, so if they're happy tears, great. But either way, they are tears that respond to. Um, and the thing is, the dogs didn't do this with strangers. Right. I show you a stranger, oh, right. and they walk out of the room. They come back in, and eh, don't whatever. Care. Yeah. Don't. No, yeah. no biggie. Interesting. <laughs> but if it's someone I know, so there is. There's clearly a some sort of bonding connection there as well. But yeah, so dogs appear to produce happy tears. Is that all linked to like oxytocin or so the cuddle hormone as That's, well? Right. That, yeah, that was the connection they made originally with the with the nursing mother yeah. um, dog. But yeah, uh, it, it seems like that is the bonding. That's the bonding Love hormone. It. Yeah. I always knew that my dog is closer to me than other humans. <laughs> totally. <laughs> You're making your dog cry. Yeah, just, just hearing you your voice out. right now. Your In dog happiness is or sadness, he can't tell you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's more like, where's my food, yes. Susie? You know my dog too well. <laughs> Breaking my heart. Yeah, I think I'm not sure cats are, you know, I know my cats, when I come home after I've been out, they look at me like. <laughs> We hate you now. Yeah. You've I mean, abandoned yeah. us. There's yeah. a reason why they did the study in dogs and not yeah. in cats, right? Yeah, I don't know. It's something that... <laughs> well, uh, look, you know, I tear up a little bit every time I see Chris KP. Fair enough, weeks. Too. Fair enough. Fair enough. And uh, it happens, but uh, <laughs> it's all part of the game. 
Dr. Susie, good to have you on the show again. Always a pleasure. Chris KP, good to see you too. I'm a little weepy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Felicia has been doing our Twitter feed today. That's uh, Live Mark 2, as I call her. Or Felicia, Mark is one. actual name. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we have two people doing our Twitter feed these days, folks. Uh, I'm Dr. Shane. Next week is Radiothon. Huge week. So join us for a very, very fun show. And please support Triple R by tuning in and perhaps subscribing if you are able. We would love that. Until then, we are going to leave you with the fabulous team from Eat It. I can see Matt Stedman and Cam's wandering off to the kitchen. That's appropriate. Yeah, there's there's a microphone out there. Uh, He can hear me. (laughs) Cam, get back to Studio One. The show's about to start. Uh, Thanks so much for listening to Triple R. We'll chat to you again next week. Remember, science is everywhere. Triple R. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Go a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Go Go's Twitter account or Facebook page.